In a scene from the recent Bruce Willis movie, Live Free or Die Hard, anthrax sensors were triggered, prompting evacuation of the FBI headquarters. Yet do such sensors really exist, or was just another flight of a Hollywood imagination? You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing anthrax during Bioweapon Week here on ReachMD. In this segment, we will be focusing on the defense against an anthrax bioweapon. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Nicholas Bergman. Dr. Bergman received his PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is currently an assistant professor in the School of Biology at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. He has recently published a paper examining some of the genomic properties of anthrax in the journal Bacteriology. Welcome, Dr. Bergman. Thank you. The first question that I have is uh, actually related to my opening. Are there really airborne anthrax biosensors? Well, I think it depends on what you mean by that. If you mean something that will give you a response, but not necessarily a real-time response, then certainly those exist. We have Homeland Security has put a number of sensors in different cities around the country that are basically sampling air, and they require somebody to go out and basically take a filter out every so often and screen that. And basically that's not necessarily all that fast, but it's a pretty reliable way of looking at what's in the air in all these different cities. Uh, in terms of more quick responses, a real-time, say, something that would, you know, in a movie, say, uh, beep when anthracis spores come through it, that kind of thing. I think that's probably something that, if it exists, it's certainly being held close to the vest by the federal government. We can get detectors that register anthracis, I think, in 10 or 15 minutes, but real-time is something that, that I haven't seen yet. How would a 10 or 15-minute sensor work? The commonly used ones are based on a real-time PCR assay. So this is in use now by the Postal Service. Uh, they basically have a port that you take a swab, you swab whatever surface you're looking at, and you insert that swab directly into the PCR chamber, and there's some fluidics that basically process the sample, get it ready for quantitative real-time PCR, and run the reactions very quickly so you can get a, a positive or negative in about, I think, 12 minutes. Well, that requires the uh, device and the technician to be actually on the premises. Is it that does, right? right. Without getting into any uh, secrets, do they actually have that? The it's, Postal Service? Yeah. Yes. So they actually have on-site every 15-minute testing? Yes. Wonderful. That makes me feel a whole lot safer. <laughs> what is the United States' general approach to defense against an anthrax bioweapon? What does the give us the overall scheme of things? Um, I think the overall scheme is a combination of vaccination and antibiotic treatments followed by decontamination after you've kind of contained the infection aspect of the, the attack. Really what we need is both antibiotics and the vaccines to be effective for that all to work well. Neither one works all that well in containing a large set of infections, a, a large attack on its own. My understanding is that the military is uh, routinely vaccinated, is that correct? Yes but not the civilian population. Right. So as things stand now, I think the military, and I, I think it may be limited to those doing forward deployments in the military, and then lab workers and veterinarians. Are there stockpiles of vaccine available if needed? 
There are some stockpiles of vaccine. The company making it is called Emergent Biosystems. They're based in the D.C. area. They, they're able to make quite a lot of it. So even though maybe the listeners have heard about Vaxgen and the next generation vaccine contract that fell through recently, this, I think it was last fall, the company making the previous vaccine is still up and running and they're still doing quite well. So they're making a lot of it and I think they can ramp up at any point probably too. So, so we've still got some vaccine floating around certainly that's at levels that are plenty for now. So how would a mass vaccination program work? Uh, if anthrax is detected, uh, what does the government do? Well, basically it's less a mass vaccination as it is a localized vaccination effort. You have to keep in mind that anthrax isn't contagious person to person, so it's really only those that are exposed that need a vaccination. The idea here is that antibiotic therapy requires that because these anthracis spores persist so long, sometimes in nasal passages, maybe stuck in nasal hair, basically they persist in spore form in the body for quite a while. And they can germinate and start an infection you know, a month or two after the initial inoculation event. So the problem with antibiotic therapy alone is that it has to last a long time. So I think with the Senate office building people, as I recall, they were recommended to take Cipro for 75 days. And by the end of that course, you know, you have some pretty serious systemic effects. You're disrupting local flora all over the place. So you have a lot of side effects coming from that. And I think the compliance rate for those Senate office staffers that were exposed with the, the letters that came to Dashiell's office, for instance, the compliance rate for that Cipro course for 75 days was less than 25%. So the idea is that you do antibiotics, and in the meantime, you would start a vaccination effort designed to, to basically inoculate everybody who was potentially exposed to anthracis. And you would maybe only need an antibiotic course that lasted two or three weeks, because in that period of time, you'd be able to get those people a couple of vaccinations, and that would bring their immunity up to a protective level. So the key to defense is both antibiotics and vaccination. Right. And of course, it goes without saying that we need to know when the exposure occurs quite quickly. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Nicholas Bergman, an expert on the biology and genomics of anthrax. This segment has been focusing on defense against an anthrax bioweapon. So what about ER and pharmacy monitoring? Is that being done? Is that part of the specific uh, defense against anthrax, or is that really being used for other things? That is. You're talking about looking at sales of, of Sudafed and this kind of thing, right? Yeah, Sudafed or even Cipro, I suppose. Sure, right. Or, you know, whatever they're going to look at. Is that an active part of the monitoring? Yes, that is being done, and that is more of a global defense against any infectious disease, particularly against the things that we don't know anything about. This is designed in some ways to protect, you know, somewhat against a bioterror attack, but also against the infections that we don't see coming. Uh, SARS is a prominent example where we didn't really see it coming, and we want a way of basically seeing those on the horizon before they get really bad. So it's that in particular is not... Uh, really just uh, for anthrax, it's really for a wide variety of pathogens. Right, and certainly it would work for anthrax, but it would also work for a lot of other things. Is a vaccine going to be effective against genetically engineered anthrax? I guess there's no way of telling. That's a good question. Uh, we know there's at least one isolate that was developed by the Soviet Union that is not affected by um, the vaccination state of the 
the individual infected. So we know there are ways around the vaccine. We just don't know how much work was done in that area. We know it was done a little, at least a little bit by the Soviets, but in other countries, who knows? Are new antibiotics being uh, tested or developed for the treatment of anthrax? Yeah, this is actually a huge priority for the national biodefense effort, partly because even though there are a lot of antibiotic options available now for treating anthrax, we also know that the Soviet Union and probably other countries have done a lot of work in trying to develop drug-resistant strains. So we know that the drugs work now, but we don't know if, for instance, there's a stockpile of those drug-resistant strains around somewhere, if we're going to need new options. We, we assume we probably will. In developing new vaccines or thinking about it or even developing new antibiotics, does that require uh, that our own people experiment with making anthrax a bioweapon? I don't know how else to ask that. The treaty limits us basically to only using small enough quantities that we can justify for defensive purposes. And I think for the most part, nobody's even trying to really weaponize these things well. People are basically producing spores, certainly, of the hot strains, the weapons-grade strains, but they're not producing them in any sort of military sense, in the sense that they're scaling up to production quantities, and they're not weaponizing these in the sense that you know, you're getting it ready for a bomb. So we are producing spores, but not in the same way that you would if you were ever going to use these in an offensive sense. I guess my question was a little different. Is anybody uh, in the United States allowed to manipulate these things to see what new antibiotics or vaccines could work against them? That, I imagine, would be secret work, so if it were being done, you might not know, and I certainly don't want to get into national defense priorities. But as a general principle, isn't that absolutely necessary to experiment with the bacteria to see what can be done with it? Yes, and there are um, some very stringent rules in place for what's called dual-use aspects of anthrax research, and this is basically governing experiments or studies which would lead to insights into the pathogenesis of bacillus anthracis, but would also lead to possibly strains or toxins that would be more useful as a weapon. And so we have a separate set of rules to deal with that, and for the most part, they're very stringent. So we have to go through multiple layers of approval before we even start an experiment like that. And in general, they're only done at either the national labs or at the Army. Well, hopefully not much of that is being done in no, any case. No, right. I gather that quarantine doesn't really have a role to play here, not much anyway. Not much, except in the sense that you'd want to basically find the limits of the exposed area and, and shut that area down. I see. So, again, I think it's worth emphasizing to our audience that it's not communicated person to person. Are um, any other countries very actively involved in doing defense against bioweapons? The French have a pretty active group, though they're less concerned with bioweapons and more concerned with infectious disease research in general. They have a very strong group at the Institut Pasteur in Paris. The British have a pretty significant presence in biodefense research. They've converted a lot of their, in a similar way that the U.S. did, converted a lot of the offensive capabilities from the 60s into defensive capabilities in the 80s and 90s and now. So they have a facility at Porton Down in England that used to be developing more offensive things, and now it's basically all biodefense. And then I should mention that the Russians have actually stepped into this area quite a lot, fueled a little bit by the U.S. State Department. 
there are programs in place now funded by the U.S. government to try to find jobs and positions in productive research for the old Russian weapon scientists. And I think the State Department has done a good job in trying to, trying to foster the growth of their own basic science and biodefense research there. This is, you know, obviously a, a thing that wasn't done entirely altruistically. We'd like to keep them out of the hands of some of the other nations that might pay them to do their own biowarfare research. So the Russians are also getting into this area a lot. I want to thank Dr. Nicholas Bergman, a nationally recognized expert on anthrax, who has been our guest. We have been discussing defense against an anthrax bioweapon. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Be safe. Be informed. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.